What is up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast, and I have such a great guest today. It is Chris Bale, all right? He just released a brand new book uh, called Breaking the Social Media Prism, and it's about you know, how to make our social media platforms so much, uh, like less polarizing. And this is such an important topic uh, for for at least, at least, at least this is when I really started noticing it, within the last, you know, four or five years since the 2016 election, this is something, he debunks a lot of conventional wisdom, you know, how, how much does, uh, you know, fake news actually affect us, you know, um, what, what are the real effects of, you know, polarizing people, social media? What can we do to make, you know, the experience better for ourselves and better for others? And how do we have better conversations and all that it is such, such, such an important subject. And uh, Chris and I have a great conversation around it. But but before we get started, do me a favor. If you haven't yet, if you're brand new here. All right. And you can wait till the end, but make sure. Make sure if you like this episode, subscribe. If you're listening on Apple, leave a rating, leave a little review. It helps push the podcast out to some more people. Uh, and uh, sharing it also helps. So we're going to be talking about social media. So sharing, you know, this podcast. This podcast is all about. I love talking to authors and you know interesting people who research and study things, and you know we can learn and have conversations and you know think through these these differing opinions in a, in a little bit better way and just learn as much as possible because, you know, the, one of the most valuable things I learned is that, you know, it's, it's important to always keep learning, always keep growing and, you know, all of that. So, so if you think any of your friends, family members, anybody who follows you on social media might enjoy this podcast, make sure you share this episode. But anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Chris Bale about his new book, Breaking the Social Media Prism. Hey, Chris. First off, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I love the book. Loved it so much. I'm super excited to have you here. So anyways, anyways, diving into this topic. So from my personal experience, a lot of people's personal experience, like I didn't really start paying attention to the influence of social media, like on people until the 2016 election of Donald Trump. Like most of us have this belief that the spread of fake news and like polarizing posts caused tremendous harm for elections and these other social issues. But in your book, you discuss that the, the conventional wisdom around polarization and the idea we have about these echo chambers aren't actually correct. Can you kind of give us an overview of what your research has shown us about echo chambers and polarization? And how does this lead to your theory of the social media prism? Yeah, I think a lot of people subscribe to one of the following popular narratives about how social media polarizes us. Probably the most famous one is the concept of the echo chamber, or, you know, here the idea is that 
we all surround ourselves with people who already share our opinions. And in so doing, we kind of insulate ourselves from people who, who don't share our views. And that can help us or, or kind of make us uh, fail to see that there can be two sides to every story or really at a more basic level, you know, fail to humanize each other. And so in 2017, uh, the Duke Polarization Lab led a study where we paid a bunch of Republicans and Democrats to take a survey, and then we invited half of them to follow a bot that would help them step outside their echo chamber. We didn't, we didn't tell them that's what it was going to do. We told them they were going to follow a bot and they could earn money for doing it. Um, so, of course, what we were interested in figuring out is, does stepping outside your echo chamber um, make you less polarized? Does it, does it move you towards the middle? And actually, what we found is exactly the opposite, um, that stepping outside your echo chamber made you more polarized, not less. Uh, another really popular idea out there is the idea that fake news and foreign misinformation campaigns are really successfully dividing Americans. And, you know, certainly there's some some concerning evidence of small bits of fake news doing a lot of damage. But if we step back and look at the bigger picture, overall exposure to fake news is actually pretty low. Um, only, uh, you know, a tiny fraction of users are actually exposed to fake news and engage with it. Um, and another kind of important factor is, you know, even though it's true that a small amount of exposure could go a long way, we don't usually measure what happens when people engage with fake news. And so a few years back, our lab did another study where we were able to look at whether the attitudes of people who interacted with the Russia-linked Internet Research Agency you know, developed more negative attitudes towards the other party or more polarized positions on, you know, individual issues. And what we discovered is they actually looked no different than everyone else. Um, now, we need much more research on this issue, but there's a few other studies coming out that confirm what we found. And, you know, so my concern more broadly is that if we focus on, you know, a handful of issues like the echo chamber or foreign misinformation campaigns, we may not move the needle very much, and we might even do things that could be counterproductive. So I think we need to understand the human element of, of what's driving polarization. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because personally, personally, like what I try to do, I try to be, you know, skeptical of, you know, the, the research and the findings and everything. But something I've, I've learned is that, you know, the intuitive answer is often the one that we go with. Like, for example, when it comes to echo chambers and fake news, right? When, when you know, I believe that when we see a, like a surprising result, like the election of Donald Trump or, you know, just uh, the polarization on social media, and then we hear, you know, the theory of echo chambers or fake news, we're like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense, right? But as you mentioned, like when you really kind of zoom in and look at the data and then you zoom out and ask more questions it's like huh is is this really accurate right because that's something that i've i've thought about where it's you know there's you know fake news spreading or you know uh, uh polarizing people and everything like that but how would how would we test and find out if those people followed through with an action such as voting for someone or, you know, and things like that. And there, there's some studies that I've, I've come across where they can follow the chain of, you know, what's shared and all that. But yeah, it's really interesting. That's why I loved about your book because it has everybody kind of just questioning the conventional wisdom and 
if we don't do that, it's a lot more difficult for us to start, you know, finding solutions and all that good stuff. Um, but yeah, so, so something, something interesting came up in your book and, uh, you know, like I'm always fascinated by how much emphasis we all put on status and most of us don't even realize it because, you know, due to how to, how we, uh, you know, evolved social status is a big deal for us, which is why we're always trying to impress others and, you know, show where we stand on this social hierarchy. And in, in your book, you discuss how we kind of use social media to display our status, whether we're sharing news or spreading rumors or attacking people online. It's all about status or even perceived status. So based on your research, can you describe the ways our struggle for status manifests when we're kind of posting on social media? Yeah, I, I really do think it's all about status. Um, you know, one thing that social scientists like me have known for a century, really, is that, you know, each day we kind of experiment with our identities in order to get social status. So we we present different versions of ourselves. We observe how other people react to those versions of ourselves. And then we tend to cultivate the identities that give us a sense of social status, a sense of belonging. And, you know, we all want social media to be a, you know, competition of ideas. We, we you know, people like Mark Zuckerberg <clears throat> or Jack, Jack Dorsey, you know, they talk about social media as if, you know, we're all fundamentally rational and kind of encountering diverse information and adopting our views. And in its idealized form, you know, this is a pretty beautiful vision of what social media could be. But it just ignores how humans act and, and how we behave. You know, really what social media does is give us a brand new place to cultivate our identities. And I think it shapes that process in two important ways. First way is that it gives us unprecedented flexibility in presenting different versions of ourselves. You know, we can be completely anonymous if we want to be, or we can be completely different people online. Second, it gives us new tools to monitor what other people think of us online. We have follower counts, like buttons, you know, a whole new vocabulary, like getting ratioed um, to understand, you know, which one of these things is working and, 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 you know, these concrete, if, you know, sometimes misleading forms of social status. So, so yeah, it really is all about status, I think. Yeah. And I, I think you bring up such, such a great point, you know, with like Zuckerberg and Dorsey and this idea that, you know, we're, we're rational human beings. And when I, when I personally just got like really interested in, you know, psychology and social sciences and behavioral economics, it was purely because I was, just, I, I was looking around you know, both online and just in, you know, in real life and being like, you know, we're, we're not rational. And I even look at my own behaviors, right? And I really got interested in the work of like Daniel Kahneman and Dan Ariely and all that. And yeah, I think, you know, that's something really interesting that you bring up here as well as, you know, in the book where we we have so much more flexibility online, right? I know, you know, you probably know, I know I do, and everybody listening to this, we, we know people who act differently in person than they do online, 
right? And a lot of it's because we want the world to see us, you know, in a certain way and, you know, for the status. And one of the reasons I, I get so curious about this stuff is because I, I see I see people arguing or disputing or fighting online. And sometimes, you know, I'm like, do you really believe this or are you digging your heels into the ground as some way to show, you know, what group, you know, you belong to and, you know, or what your status is and, and all of that. Um, but, but yeah, speaking of, you know, arguing and conflict and all that online, uh, one of the most interesting chapters in your book, and I've, I've read a lot of books like this, and it's very rare that someone dives into like the psychology or even the study behind online trolls, right? So in, in the book, I believe it was in chapter five, you talk about, you know, these quote unquote, like lonely trolls. And although these trolls cause a lot of harm through what they say to others online, and sometimes even with their real life actions, you know, I, I can't help but feel sorry for them. And you discuss how sometimes this is due to the trolls, you know, lack of connection with others. So in your opinion, what, what, what can we all do to better connect with these, you know, trolls and hopefully show them that there's a better way to act? Like, do you believe something like, uh, you know, the robber's cave experiment would help by, you know, bringing people together and identifying a common struggle to unite around? Yeah, I feel sorry for them too. Um, you know, the type of person who lives in a motel because they can't afford to live anywhere else, you know, like a Motel 6, and falls asleep watching fake news and, and wakes up watching fake news, you know, after recently losing a spouse, like one of the characters that I profile in this book, you know, that, that's a, a pretty horrific existence for anyone to have. And, you know, on top of that, suffering professional humiliations and and really feeling marginalized for one's political views. I mean, we, you know, we might disagree with those views sometimes, but, you know, it, it's pretty awful to, to feel like you don't have a outlet and you don't have a way of, of fitting in. We, we all know that. That's kind of basic human instinct. So for people like this, yeah, I mean, social media becomes a kind of a refuge. You know, they're all looking for ways to fit in. They can be a different kind of person online. That's exciting. Um, they can, you know, get engagement from other people, people who feel like they lack control in their everyday life. If they're suddenly getting people riled up online or, you know, having people cheering them on for saying extreme things, yeah, these trolls can really transform, uh, live really different existences um, from social outcasts by day, but, you know, trolling micro celebrity at night, you know, and however terrible that is for the rest of us. Yeah, what's what's interesting, um, and and like some of my like you know old audience members who have been around for a while, like through YouTube and everything like that, like you know I've discussed this before. I've been very open about it in my teenage years. You know, like the rise of, you know, uh, just the internet and like AOL and you know social media hadn't really taken off uh, until I was you know late teens, early twenties, maybe. But anyways, I I was a troll. I was this online troll, and I would post on forums and argue with people in video games and all these and just exactly like you point out it's this you know uh it was this lack of control in my life like i was you know extremely depressed because of the issues i was having at home and i was you know had anxiety and anger issues and online i, I felt this kind of you know control and you know i can get attention and you know uh 
So I definitely empathize with these, with these people, you know, but um, yeah, I, like, like you said, I think one of the most important things that we could do is try to put ourselves in their, in their shoes. Like as cheesy as it sounds, like I have a 12 year old son, but I've taught him, you know, since he was younger, because I used to be one of these people, like when he's dealing with someone who's even a jerk at school, I'm like, Hey, like just kind of imagine like what their home life might be like, maybe, you know, you know, uh, they don't, you know, have as many toys as you do. Maybe they don't have parents who are hanging out with them and all that. And like you, you mentioned, like when you have, uh, you know, some stories in your books, like there's some people who are just going through terrible life circumstances. And I don't think we, we often think about who these people are, what they're going through and isn't an excuse, not really in my opinion, but it helps us take a step back, empathize a little bit more and maybe, you know, come from a place of empathy and, can try at least to have a, a decent, you know, com uh, conversation about all this. Um, but yeah, so, so in the book, uh, a lot of people that you, you interviewed discuss how they felt this, like this, you know, quote unquote need to rely to people. And I can, I can definitely relate to that. And I'm sure a lot of people can, where we just can't let things go. We have to reply. Right. So whether it was, it was trolls or just people with, moderate political opinions, why do you think we feel this need to argue with complete strangers? Like, do you, do you, do we really think we're going to change someone's mind by replying to them on social media? Or do you think the goal isn't to change minds, but kind of like what we were talking about a little bit earlier about status and group identity and all that, uh, is it more of someone just trying to solidify themselves within their their group identity by saying, "Hey, this is this is you know where I'm staking my 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 place you know in this group, and this is this is my side." So so the arguing is more of a sign of status. Yeah, why do we have this need to use social media? It's really bizarre to me. I mean, the the curious thing to my mind is that you know so many people are arguing into the ether on social media when a majority of people say they know that nobody's changing their minds on social media. To me, this just suggests that it's all just performative. You know, we're really performing for our side. We're performing for ourselves. You know, we're deriving some type of satisfaction from kind of owning the other side or, you know, putting them down. But yeah, it's definitely not about any kind of rational communication. Um, it's really just about Im impressing other people. Um, but I think this instinct to react, you know, we have this powerful new tool to hear what people think about, uh, think about us. And so, yeah, we use it all the time. You know, we're, we're, it's almost like we're just putting out signals and these signals, you know, give us clues about how to act and something we all crave, a, a better way of monitoring our social environments, figuring out what other people think of us. Again, that's like a human instinct. So, you know, to think about um, why people use social media. You know, some people might say, well, we're addicted to the flashy, you know, colorful apps or, you know, we're addicted to, you know, other kinds of seductive technology created by Silicon Valley. And I think, yeah, there's there's some truth to that. But the deeper source of our addiction, again, I think is because it helps us do what's all too human. Try, you know, try to find ways to, to fit in. Yeah, ab absolutely. Absolutely. And 
and before I say this, I want to preface this for all of my wonderful uh, listeners out there. Like, uh, <laughs> I mean, no, no disrespect, but like you said, like I'm very, I'm very curious about this. Uh, when I see, for example, when I see someone just, you know, just trolling me, you know, on on Twitter or in my YouTube comments, and then, you know, I'll do some research, and and I know a lot of creators and people in the spotlight, they do this, even though they might not talk about it so much publicly, but I'll look and I'll be like, who is this person, you know, and everything like that, and I'll see that they have maybe less than 10 followers, maybe less than 100 followers, you know, and things like that, and in the grand scheme of things, like you mentioned, like, we're arguing into the ether, and and it's really interesting. You can go through someone's Twitter feed. They have one, two followers or whatever it is. And you go through and you see them with these these super strong opinions and these replies. And, you know, no, not many followers, rarely if ever, do they get any likes or anything on that on, on their comments. And, yeah, I could sit here and talk to you all, all day about this because I think it is just the most interesting thing in the world because – you know, going back to conventional wisdom, we hear about how, you know, these flashy like social media apps, they, they give us dopamine hits and everything like that. And there's like these intermediate like like rewards. Um, and you never know if your post is going to go viral or one of your tweets is going to get a lot of likes. And I don't know if that's what people are chasing or what, but I'm just I look at it. I'm like, where's where's your reinforcement? Right. Like if we're looking at behavioral psychology, it's like we're what's what's making you repeat this behavior because you're not getting positive feedback or no feedback at all or you know whatever it is so so anyways yeah i think i think we should study that you know uh a bit more but anyways moving on so as someone uh like myself uh i i grew up in like the 90s and early 2000s and i was i was super introverted like i mentioned you know i was an online troll and things like that but i i didn't do that you know at school or in person or anything but anyways for me uh, you know, AOL and instant messenger was my gateway to actually start socializing without having this crippling social anxiety. And as a gamer, when internet gaming started to gain traction, you know, aside from, you know, me being a jerk online, I actually met so many friends like that I still have today, 20 years later, right, that I met through these online communities. So today we're we're more connected with communities of people from all around the world and it, it it's incredible. But it seems that we're constantly hearing the negative aspects of social media. For example, one of the biggest documentaries of 2020 was The Social Dilemma on Netflix, where it discussed how social media algorithms and you know, uh, how they can, you know, lead to radicalizing people. And personally, I was shocked about how many people didn't even know how these algorithms work. But in your opinion, should more people delete social media or decrease their use of it? Um, you know, like if, if social media is a tool, how can people best use it, you know, to reap the benefits of, you know, connecting with other people? Yeah, this is such an important question. I mean, I think that, you know, so many people say, you know, we should all delete our accounts, that this is the way to punish Facebook for, you know, creating this, you know, this tool that is, uh, you know, polarizing us or spreading misinformation or robbing us of our attention. And, and you know, the, the extreme version of the story, shaping our beliefs and, and, and innermost desires. Um, 
But, you know, we need to think carefully about who's giving this message. You know, there's a whole kind of cottage industry of apocryphal tech leaders who are, you know, saying that they, through this miraculous engineering, created these powerful tools to manipulate human psychology with, with unprecedented scale. And that's a seductive narrative, especially when it comes from people who profited from these things. But, you know, now they're profiting from selling books about, you know, how social media is shaping our psychology. And when we when we get deeper into those explanations, we see there's actually pretty little evidence that things like micro-targeting, even, even micro-targeting for consumer behavior is driving much of our behavior. So, yeah, I think, you know, I, I don't want people to delete their accounts, not simply because, you know, I think social media is great. You know, I, I see a lot of negative with social media. My deeper concern is is more kind of pragmatic. You know, what else are we going to do? We're all so embedded in social media, especially young people using social media in unprecedented numbers. You know, I, like you, yeah, found comfort in digital communities growing up. And so I think there's an enormous potential there. The question to my mind is like, how do we design the platforms so that they encourage that type of positive connection instead of you know, the trolling, pervasive incivility and all that that we see so clearly right now. Yeah, I remember, I remember one of the, one of my favorite analogies, and I teach it to my son with literally everything, uh, especially now that we, we, we like to cook together and stuff. But anyways, I, I heard uh, someone say that social media is is like a knife, right? And if you're a, you know, if, if you're paying attention to what you're doing, you know, a knife could be a very useful tool, like in the kitchen when you're chopping up, you know, vegetables or food or, you know, whatever it is. But if you're not paying attention, it can, it can hurt you. Right. And I, I, I talk about this with my son about how things are, you know, tools and we, you know, things could be either good or bad. It all depends on how we use it. And kind of like what you're saying, like with social media, I think that's just something we need to be aware of right because it's it's insane that we can you know connect with people from all over the world like i remember when i was a kid right before social media started kicking off they're like hey do you want to write like you know a, a pen pal a complete stranger in another country and you wait weeks and you know all that and but now it's like you can connect and you know yesterday i i, I just tweeted out something I'm like hey you know and i asked a question to any of any of my followers in the uk and i got an answer you know i probably could have googled it but i like connecting with people but um anyways yeah um again like any, anybody listening to this like go go get chris's book <laughs> because there's so many myths that he dispels and i i i, I love how you just mentioned that like there's little evidence that this micro targeting is like manipulating our psychology and actually actually works and in my personal opinion, in my personal opinion, like I know we can all be irrational human beings, but sometimes I just feel like people don't give humans enough credit. Like, like we're just these, these mindless zombies with like no, no ability to control our actions. And we just see an advertisement and we immediately buy it and, you know, and all these things. And, uh, and, and while yes, there is, you know, some research and evidence out there, that if we're not paying attention, yeah, we can overspend and, you know, buy things and all that. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. And it's this whole cycle of, you know, people profiting and marketing and, you know, all that and benefiting off just even talking about how these, you know, the psychology of, you know, social media apps and all that. But anyways, anyways. So um, for years, uh, we've, we've been hearing about how misinformation and fake news spreads throughout social media. And I guess like while while this is true, 
the conventional wisdom tells us that people are swayed by this type of misinformation, right? So I've, like I mentioned earlier, like I've kind of always questioned this narrative because it's hard for me to believe, again, that just uh, a majority of humanity doesn't have a single ounce of skepticism in their body. So when it comes to the spread of misinformation on social media, what have you what have you found in your research? And I know you talk about it a little, a little bit in your book. Well, quite a bit in your book. But for those who haven't read it yet, what have you found when it comes to misinformation? Yeah, as I was saying earlier, there's surprisingly little inf- in you know surprisingly little evidence that misinformation is shaping our views. You know, we want to use it to explain so much of what's going on in our country. So people want to explain the election of Trump through the intervention of Russia on on you know online and. You know, you know, maybe there's some effects at the margins, but overall, it doesn't seem to explain the lion's share of, of, of you know, changes on social media and polarization on social media. Um, you know, again, when we think about fake news, it, there is evidence that, for example, Republicans are more likely to share fake news, that older people are more likely to share fake news. But there's an interesting new study which looks at the motivations of people who share fake news. And you might think, well, these people just have low education or maybe they're just not, you know, not they don't really understand the digital world and they think anything they see on Facebook is true. It turns out the majority of the people sharing fake news, at least on Twitter, seem to be people whose principal goal is just to take the other party down. They don't have low cognitive ability. They don't have low education. You know, we're weaponizing fake news as, as a way of kind of trying to attack each other. So. You know, even the people who probably know that the news isn't quite right or, or, or is at least misleading are dispatching it in the kind of partisan warfare that we've all grown accustomed to on social media. And why do Republicans do it more? Well, this study had an interesting hypothesis. You know, Republicans believe that there's strong liberal bias in the media ecosystem. And so they may feel like they just need to throw any kind of negative news about uh, Democrats um, back across the aisle, even if it is, you know, um, maybe not the highest quality information. Yeah, that's that's really that's really interesting uh, that that study and and yeah, you know, like a, a few episodes ago, I had uh, Mick West on here, uh, who's a you know conspiracy theory debunker, and you know, I'm interested in learning about you know people who believe in conspiracies, and something that they found is people who believe in conspiracies are more likely to do it because they feel like it's justified. Like for example, Nixon and the whole Watergate thing, he thought you know the other party was spying on him, so he felt he was justified. So that's interesting. Um, that's an interesting hypothesis that. You know, if you believe that uh, there's a huge liberal bias in the media, you might feel justified in sharing something that you may not even believe is completely true. And going back to the whole group identity part of it, you know, uh, I, you know, I would assume that some people purely just share these things because it's part of, you know, their side. Like, hey, this is what our side beliefs right and you know it's not so much about you know the truth of the matter as much as it is this is what we're believers of and i think a great example is what we've experienced this last you know year with the covid pandemic it quickly you know the mask thing quickly became political like people on the left they like wearing masks and people on the right they're the ones who are anti-mask you know what i mean and uh and yeah so uh it's it's really really interesting stuff um 
but yeah, like, uh, so later in the book, um, you, you start discussing, you, you start discussing how moderates, like they need to discuss politics more on social media. And I was actually just having a conversation with somebody about this the other day, because your research around this, it really, it really changed my perspective and it made me, you know, uh, not be so afraid of, you know, conflict and debate and, you know, all this. But anyways, in your book, you talk about how, like, based on your research, it shows that moderates should be more involved in these political discussions, right? Like, like the book discusses how extreme views tend to hijack these conversations online. So can you explain, um, you know, your research a little bit when it comes to moderates on social media and how can more people get over, like I was saying, like this, this kind of fear of, you know, conflict or even like healthy debate online? Yeah, moderates are so important. I think all of us have asked ourselves this question and at some point, you know, are there any moderates on social media? Like, is that an oxymoron, the idea of a moderate uh, on social media? And there's a reason why we think that. Um, you know, we know that about 73% of tweets about politics are being created by about 6% of Twitter users, and those 6% of Twitter users have unusually extreme views. Meanwhile, the average social media user never talks about politics. And among political moderates, that effect is even larger. An overwhelming majority of moderates, and especially moderate Republicans, seldom or never post about politics online. And so they can really seem invisible. And, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why this happens. You know, moderates uh, may be getting harassed by extremists on the other side or even on their own side. But also, like, we have to think back to the motivation of using social media, right? It's about status. So is there status to be gained for moderates? And the, and the answer, I think, is no. You're, you get rewarded with status for preaching to the choir. You get likes and new follows for saying more extreme things. You don't get you don't get engagement around moderation, right? You only get attacked by those people who are trying to take down moderates, the extremists. And meanwhile, you know, a lot of moderates have a lot of other sources of status in their lives. You know, maybe they care about their job or their family or they don't want to have an awkward Thanksgiving dinner, you know. And so this is one of the many reasons why moderates tend to disengage, according to my research. Yeah, it's 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 so weird. And I I don't even know what the solution around that is, because like you mentioned, like we're we're all motivated by incentives and something I, I noticed just when I became a creator, you know, and started out, you know, uh, you know, writing blogs and making videos on on YouTube is the way to build an audience of following is to, like you said, preach to the choir like as as any type of, you know, creator or influencer or person trying to get attention online, your best bet is to say what everybody agrees with because confirmation bias is such a powerful tool. And yeah, and it's interesting because as, as you were saying that, I'm sitting here thinking, I'm like, well, how do we incentivize more moderates, you know, to get into discussions, right? Like, because like you said, if, if you're not all the way to the left or all the way to the right, you're, you're going to get attacked, right? And if you're, <laughs> if you're even somewhere, if you're even somewhere in the middle, now you're getting attacked by both sides. So I could, I could imagine, um, you know, a lot of people just saying, screw it. Like, I'll just, I'll just keep my 
my mouth shut, you know? So, so for anybody listening, like something I personally do, like I, I try to look at it, you know, I know I'm not that important, but I try to look at it as somewhat of a, a responsibility to just go in there and present, you know, a, a different point of view and, and try not to come off as just someone like trying to start an argument or, you know, I'll ask questions and try to have a conversation and, and all that, right? Because hopefully, hopefully, if en- in my opinion, if enough of us can do this, maybe it'll encourage other people to realize like, oh, I, I, can, I can express this opinion. I can, you know, say like, hey, you know, although I'm a liberal or although I'm a conservative, I disagree with my, my side you know, is, is doing right. Um, but anyways, Chris, I got, I got one last question for you. So, so one of the things I loved, I absolutely loved about the final chapters of the book is that, yeah, you, you start diving into some solutions. You, you take some time to discuss how we can be less polarizing by removing things like quote unquote, like hardcore liberal or uh, second amendment loving conservative from our profiles or our bios. So here's my question with, with our strong need to find like-minded individuals, what's a better way to find people who align with our morals and values if we're not somehow publicly displaying these things? Yeah. One of the funnest parts of writing this book was to do this thought experiment if we could redesign social media from scratch, what should we do? And we just don't ask this question enough. We've been content to accept these platforms that were originally created for these ridiculous purposes, like you know Harvard undergraduates rating each other's physical attractiveness. And now all of a sudden these tools are supposed to seamlessly evolve into the primary forum for discourse about social problems in the 21st century. It's, it's absurd. So if we start to think about solutions, I mean, there's a lot that could be done from the top down and the bottom up. From the bottom up, we need to get better at distinguishing extremists from moderates. We need to learn how to avoid extremists and we need to learn how to identify moderates. And that's why we spent so much time in the Duke Polarization Lab creating tools that people can use uh, for free. This kind of middleware technology that helps you take control of your feed instead of you know, feeling like a victim of social media platforms. You know learn to identify non-polarizing moderates on the other side, follow the bots that we've created that retweet their messages, check out our bipartisanship leaderboard. And from the top down, you know, we really need social media companies to start thinking about what's the purpose of the platform. You know, if it really is to produce better conversations, then we need to really think of what type of conversations are being boosted and rewarded. So for example, instead of promoting people who are preaching to the choir, why not optimize the algorithms so that they promote or boost or you know, move up the order of messages in our feed that are actually resonating across partisan lines? And, you know, we don't even have to stop at politics. We could think of optimizing across gender or age or race or any other kind of social chasm that can lead ourselves to kind of cloister ourselves. And in this way, social media could really begin to optimize for democracy instead of optimizing for this kind of weird status-seeking micro-celebrity that's really, you know, deleterious to democracy. Yeah, absolutely. And what a, what a great note to, to leave that on. And, and yeah, I think that's something we need to think about is just the way the algorithms are, you know, promoting certain types of like behavior and, you know, preaching to the choir and all that. Uh, but yeah, anyways, thank you so much for taking the time to come on here, Chris. 
Thanks so much for having me on, Chris. Well, there, there you have it, everybody. Uh, that is Chris Bale. And again, th- thanks so much for coming on, Chris. And everybody listening, all right, like, this is such an important conversation. This is such an important conversation. So make sure you check out the description down below. I have a link to Chris's brand new book. It just came out a couple months ago. It's called Breaking the Social Media Prism. All right. This is such a great book. And it really, you know, as much as I, I research this stuff and try to learn about it, like it opened my eyes to so many things. And like, like we talked about it, debunks myths and, and conventional wisdom and all that. But it provides some practical solutions. Right. So, yeah, go check it out. Um, I've also included uh his Twitter um, account down there. He's always sharing really cool studies and stuff like that on Twitter. Um, he's pretty responsive to, you know what I mean? <laughs> I don't want to, you know, hey, Chris, I don't want to, you know, have him flooded with like tweets and DMs and stuff like that. But anyways, I'm just saying, like, you can have you can have a little conversation, you know, and ask questions and stuff like that. Um, but anyways, make sure you check out the description, get a copy of his, of his book, follow on social media. But that's all we got for this episode. So if you like this episode, Please, please, please do me a favor. This this was episode five, so we're still getting started. We're still getting rolling. And kind of like how Chris and I talked about on this episode, the algorithms, you know, they work in a certain way. So we got to do what we got to do here. So do me a favor and subscribe. If you're not listening on Apple, subscribe to the podcast. Rate it. Leave a little review. Just an honest review. You know, your likes, your dislikes, whatever. I'm, I'm always looking for honest feedback. And, uh, and yeah, share it. Share it with people. If you like this episode, if you think more people should learn about this stuff, uh, that, you know, social media and polarization, share this episode. Tell a friend. Tell a family member. Whatever it is. And there's also some more links down below if you want to, you know, support the podcast in any way. There's a Patreon. There's, uh, you know, the books on the rewiredsoul.com. And there's an affiliate link down below for better help online therapy, which I absolutely love. Mental health is a big, big deal to me. And, uh, and yeah, like speaking of polarization, um, better help online therapy personally helped me a lot when I was going through some social media backlash a couple years ago. But anyways, anyways, check out the stuff down below, make sure you subscribe, share all that good stuff. And all my social media is down there below. Uh, and I'm pretty responsive too. us. Chris's were just we're just responsive. <laughs> but anyways, thank you so much for tuning in and we'll have a brand new episode for you next Wednesday. Have a great rest of your day. <laughs>